Okay. Hello. Hello. All right. We are live. Um, welcome to everyone joining on Zoom and Facebook. It is a pleasure to have everyone here. Welcome to the third session of Emotions in Halacha with Reverend Victoria Sutton. Um, the Jewish legal tradition has much to say about how we are to act, but how are we? To, but what about how are we to feel? Do emotional states in and of themselves have significance in halacha? Um, tonight's class will be um, hearing, I believe, on the topic of. Um, oh no, I forgot to look it up beforehand. Shame and embarrassment. Shame and embarrassment. Important, relevant topic these days. Yes. And just a quick point of housekeeping, I'm going to be sending out, if you're joining on Zoom, I'm going to be sending panel, panel invitations momentarily. Um, and do feel, please, please feel welcome to ask questions. You can ask them in chat, either on Zoom or on Facebook Live. If you're, and if you're here on, in the Zoom, you can also ask questions too. Either raise your hand using the raise your hand icon, or raise your hand, or speak out. And it's a pleasure to hear from you. Questions, questions make for better learning. And with that, without, without further delay, I would like to turn things over to Ravneet Sutton. Thank you, Kayla. Welcome, everyone. I see some familiar faces and some familiar names. And just as uh, an additional encouragement, I'm happy to have you here in whatever capacity you're here. And if you want to join in the panelists and um, be able to chat or ask questions and be part of the conversation, um, would love your participation and input um, as much as you have the bandwidth for this evening. Um, so welcome. Um, we This is the third session of five. In our first session, we talked about that Shabbat feeling, the laws about owning Shabbat um, and how we sort of create our, our, our own Shabbat each week, um, our pleasure of Shabbat. Um, people can find those sources and the recordings. The second week we focused on Simcha, um, both joy of holidays, joy in making others happy, both through specific mitzvot and in general, um, bringing joy to others as a way to also not only bring joy to others, but bring joy to ourselves, and a general sort of state of joy, maybe fulfillment or meaning in religious experience and activity as also a sense of joy for the rabbis. The third session tonight is um, a little bit of a different topic. I know we've been looking about pleasure and joy. Now we're going to talk about shame and embarrassment. Um, I'm going to share my source sheet in just a second. Um, each of the classes is a standalone. If you missed the first or second one, um, you, each one is sort of a fresh look at a new emotion, a new emotional state, and the way that the rabbis saw that in a legal way um, or in a religious uh, experiential way. So I'm going to share my screen, and the sources um, are also shared. So we're going to look at a few different ways of thinking about shame and embarrassment. The first one we'll spend the least time on, even though it's probably a huge section in the Talmud, um, not necessarily our focus for this evening, but there's a lot of people are interested. Um, the first thing is we'll just take a cursory glance at the idea of Boshe, that emotional damages and shame um, reparations are things that are part of the Talmud, have been in existence for a very long time, are not part of just the American litigious system, um, but actually that shame is considered as something that can be quantified. Um, we're going to talk about the severity of embarrassing other people, the idea of halvanat panim, and in that vein, thinking about then setting the stage for how significant shame and embarrassment are 
um, in this context. Um, we're going to look at some takanot that are in Talmudic times and post-Talmudic times. What's the responsibility of those in charge and of communities to create um, create fixes if they notice that like people are people are getting embarrassed, right? That there's maybe too high of a bar of participation. Um, and how do how are they sensitive to that vulnerability, um, empathic to that, and then create um, changes to the system um, to respond to that. Um, and then the fourth big question, which we'll just scratch the surface on as more is being written on this, um, can public shaming or social media ever be used as a tool for good? Um, can we have any sort of productive um, public shaming? Okay, so with that, um, we'll jump We'll jump right in. And again, as Kayla said, I encourage people to put, um, put questions in the chat. You can raise your hand and then I'm happy for you to unmute if you have questions or comments as we go. Okay, so we're just gonna take a very cursory look. Many of you might be familiar with this, but if not, it's important to just lay this groundwork. Um, that there's laws of injury. There are five things that one must pay when somebody physically injures somebody else. Talking about physical injury now. Um, for the actual injury, for their pain, for healing, meaning for their medical care, um, for loss of income, basically workers' compensation, right? If they were unable to work because of this injury that you caused them, and also for bullshit, for shame or indignity. Um, and there's this concept that everything is um, meaning how do we figure out the amount how does one quantify, right? How do you take something like emotional damages and then quantify it? Um, and again, we're going to look at a cursory, but just understand the, the, the general framework for this. Um, that um, that it, it depends on the person themselves. Maybe it depends on their status. Maybe it depends on the level of what happened. Um, we're going to see also intention plays in. Um, okay. Um, the Gemara notes on here, right? How is it assessed? Again, based on the status of the person, um, of the one who humiliates and the one who is humiliated. So both of their statuses, meaning is, are they a minor, um, right? Are they um, of sound mind, right? These are questions, were they sleeping? Was one of them sleeping at the time? Um, right? So these are questions that come up. Um, there's, um, there's a comment on the bottom um, where there's an idea that Rabbi Uda says that a blind person does not have boshet. Um, that meant in terms of them paying out to other people if they embarrass the other person. Um, but right, we don't want to say that it's about, right, and has to clarify, it's not about someone else not giving them compensation, right? They are compensated, um, but they don't have to compensate others. We can think about why. Um, there's a really interesting article about this. Um, I'm happy to share it if, uh, afterwards if people, um, people want the link um, by Sarah Wolf, who has um, done a lot of work on emotions and halakha on shame and the idea of seeing and why vision uh, right, is important in this and, and um, really fascinating. These laws are codified in the Mishneh Torah. We've looked at the Mishneh Torah a lot, like the code of law of the Rambam in the 13th century. Um, and the Shukran Aruch says, again, one who intends to embarrass, um, just to add of the intentionality and the differential rates here that we talked about. One who intends, and mitkavim, Rabbi Ashatakatan, so if you intended to embarrass a minor, a child, and you embarrass an adult, um, you impose on the adult the amount of shame for the minor. Meaning, what does it go by? Seems like it might go by your intention. 
what was your intention in the moment? Um, you can't say, oh, I didn't mean to like hurt your feelings, right? I didn't mean to embarrass you, right? So you have to, you're responsible for what you did, but it seems like there is, um, there is some sense of intentionality here, right? What did you mean to do in the moment? Um, one who intends to embarrass a slave and embarrasses a free person, you impose um, the amount for the shame of a slave, meaning it depends on the intention. Um, that's just a very, very cursory. There's a lot more to say about all of these, um, but to think about the fact that one, one is physically injured, number one, when one is physically injured, that emotional damages are one of the five things that are assessed. Um, and there seems to be taking into account the stature of that person, um, the, the circumstances of intentionality, but of what went into that moment, right? It's not a one size fits all thing, but it really depends on the individuals themselves. Um, we're gonna move on to the second category. Um, and again, if people have questions, they can put it um, in the chat. This is the concept of halbanat panim or embarrassing another. Just a word about the actual phrase itself. Um, so I see Desmond's question. Why are we ignoring Rabbi Air's position of paying the highest damages and instead paying less to poor disabled people? Right, so this is a question that actually is really, really important. Um, if the whole class were on this, I think I would bring, I would have brought some sources um, to deepen this um, and something that I'm happy to, um, to, to deepen afterwards. But I think that's a question that we're gonna think about throughout, um, right, sort of what, we're gonna see that in general, when it's not talking about bullshit and court payments that we're actually demanding of somebody, um, we're gonna see that embarrassment um, in general is taken very, very seriously for everybody. And the idea that everybody that has celimokim is taken very, very significantly. Um, um, I think the question of in legal terms, um, what can be paid might be sort of the deciding factor there, but it would require a lot more, um, right, a lot more fleshing out. But an important question, thank you. So just a word on what does halbanat panim actually mean? So halbanat panim literally means for somebody's face to whiten. Now you're going to say, why, why is somebody being embarrassed, um, right? Why would their face whiten? Um, so there's a bunch of explanations. Um, there's a bunch of explanations on this. Um, of how to reconcile, right? What, what normally happens when someone gets embarrassed? What do we normally think of as a shame response? Unmute and say, right? What's a normal blushing? Blushing, right? If somebody's blushing, all the blood actually runs to their face, not away from their face, right? Thank you, Lavana. Um, so why is it called halbanat panim? So there's some like fancy footwork um, that um, the Bartonura does and others do. Um, the Bartonura tries to explain that it's like a two-step process. And I think hearing these also help us think about like, what's the physiological state, the emotional and physiological state um, in which the person is going through. That shame is not just something, um, right, psychological, but there actually is a huge physiological component, right? Your whole body and your whole self um, is, is in the moment. So he says that first, when you're embarrassed, you might feel really angry. Like, oh my gosh, what did I just hear what I thought I heard? Did that person just say or do what I thought they did? And like the blood will rush to your face. But then you start to like realize it sets in um, and, uh, and, you, and you turn white, um, right? Because you start to really worry and the blood sort of, as I, I think they felt like the, um, 
something that's talked about as the kidney, but like that the gut is like where a lot of this thinking and stewing and brewing happens, um, and that maybe the blood rushes there and that your face turns white. So that's what the Bartonura, um, Bartonura maybe says. Um, and that's how the Gemara, because the Gemara describes it as basically the blood just rushes away, right? Um, we're going to see it's going to be called spilling blood, but it's from that idea that the blood rushes um, away. Um, the Midrash Shmuel says, um, his translation, one who is humiliated, his face burns first turns red, and then their face turns white. Um, because of the magnitude of the shame, their soul flies away as if it wanted to leave the body. And once the blood returns to its source, the face turns white, um, like someone who has died. Right? This is trying to understand both the source we're going to learn now and also the sense of halvanapkenim. Um, some translations might actually say um, reddening of the face. Um, I see, thank you, um, Mary. I see questions also about the, um, you know, it was not exactly fair of me to sort of throw that in and then say we're going to move on. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to bring some sources for next time. Um, to, to address some of those very, very significant questions. Um, but since it was, it's more of a class, class of like, what, what I think of like, how does this affect our lives today? And of course the, the legal system and the ideals behind that is important. Um, so perhaps I'll bring some sources next time to just address those questions that people have about those first sections. Okay, so the Gemara on Sanhedrin says, um, there's this famous story, right? Of, uh, of David who did a terrible thing. Did a terrible thing. He committed adultery. Um, he possibly had the husband of Bachava sent to the front lines. Um, he was called out on it, um, but people taunted him on that. And uh, and they, he says, you know what? I might have did some, I've done something wrong. I might have done something really, really, really bad, like a really bad sin. But I'm going to try to make up for it. I'm going to do Tishuvah, He says to the people who taunted me. He says, but you who humiliated me in front of public. Right? You have no share in Olam Haba. Um, really very extreme statement, right? Somebody who has just committed adultery, used their power as king um, in multiple ways, um, done pays for it, does Teshuvah, but saying like, what I did pales in comparison to you embarrassing me for doing this um, in a public way. So there's a sense of right public here that's important. Um, the second source here is probably the most famous on this, and the word halvanat panim, right? The blood rushing definitely has a lot to do with that. That um, right? anyone who humiliates another person in public is as though they were spilling their blood, right? Um, and again, because right, maybe the blood leaves their face, right? This is what we said, which is maybe like, okay, we don't mean like actually killing them, but we mean like you're causing your blood, but it's there's there's but the comparison is made there, right? Um, that maybe actually what you're doing to that person and thinking about emotional damage as being something that we do quantify along with physical damages, right? In the previous section, um, that actually what you're doing to that person is a really severe hurt and a really severe damage that cuts them, not in a way where the blood is leaving their body in a, in a, outside way, but way where their blood is leaving, meaning their soul, maybe as right, we heard the Midrash Mal said, but something has died for them in that moment. Um, or you have done serious, serious um, damage in that moment, um, and perhaps damage that cannot be fixed. Um, Abai also said to Rabbini, he said, yes, in Eretz Yisrael, we're very, very vigilant about this, about this 
about refraining from humiliating others, um, right? We're, we're very secure about this, um, about whitening people's faces. Um, there's a little bit of a, I'll call, I'll call you in a second. There's a little of a dig here, um, just because there is sort of this, we looked at this, if people looked at the Ramavadya source from the first week of Onik Shabbat, of studying really back and forth Torah. Um, there's this idea that in Babylonia, they were very harsh to each other. Um, and like part of the banter of the Beit Midrash, like they would say sometimes mean things, like they, they would put each other to the cat. Like they weren't always so warm and nice to each other. Or maybe in Eretz Yisrael, they were more pleasant and nice to each other. So sort of a little bit of a dig. Like in Eretz Yisrael, like we actually care about this, right? The, the scholars there um, don't act that way in the Beit Midrash. They don't use those opportunities to like one-up people and embarrass them and shame them in front, right? That's not our style. Um, yes, Charlotte, you have a question. Yeah, hi. Um, I have a question. Yeah. yeah, I feel like there's so much more to the concept of busha, like, um, you know, speaking about someone behind their back yes. or spreading things where yes. it really becomes in other people's eyes, truths and public knowledges and stuff like that. And there isn't really, I don't know, it, I feel like it's such a detailed situation that how can the Gemara establish a halacha for something that's so detailed? Like, how do we know? I guess I'm I'm asking um, from like a personal place, like yeah. what is the punishment? What would the punishment for something ah. like that be? Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna um, we're gonna dive deeply, but as you discussed, there's many different situations here, and sometimes it's more nuanced. We're gonna look at some situations that maybe there's nuance. Um, that maybe we thought it was more nuanced, but maybe we err on the side um, of vigilance um, is what we're going to really see here is that we err on the side, just so they say we're, we're, we are Zihirim, we err on the side of um, vigilance for who though? Vigilance in terms of the person who um, might be saying or doing the thing. Um, but we, I don't want to speak in the abstract, so I want to um, yeah. look at some of the right. examples. Um, but it does tend to err on that side. Um, in terms of just to scroll, we'll, we'll think about your bigger question in terms of like, wait, this is a serious accusation here. And what does that actually mean? Yeah, Lisa. I just wanted to say, you know, we do have the phrase in English, you know, you say somebody's face blanches. Yes. So that idea of lahalbin, you know, panecha it yeah. is not an uncommon concept. Right. Right, that, and know, blanching you might, might you might blush first, but then you might like blanch in shock at what? Right, that's often like a shock response. Yeah, right? um, a shock, a shock response, like something that was a shock to the system. Um, exactly, I think is exactly what the Bartonero was referring to. Um, okay, so now this is very extreme statement here made as well, and I I think you're picking up on the fact that these are really. Um, um, big accusations, right? We know that shame yeah, is, exactly. is important, is, is really horrible, but to see it said in this way feels like, it feels like, wow, okay. <laughs> like, it's very serious. Um, so um, everybody who goes down to Gihinom um, ultimately ascends, except for three people who did three types of sins that maybe they really can't come back from them, okay? Um, Okay, um, one of those, we're just going to focus on that one, is one who humiliates another person in public and also one who calls somebody a derogatory name. So two out of the three, okay, um, are, right, so the Gemara asks the obvious question, um, aren't those the same 
thing, really? Like, why do you have to, like, those are really serious accusations. And now two out of three are going to be things that like sort of overlap with each other, right? Isn't that identical? Why are we listing them separately? Um, and this is where the, the vigilance comes in. Um, and it says, um, meaning could be that you mean this person has this derogatory name. Um, it's interesting if nicknames could fall into this. Um, we learn these sources. There's, there's a whole unit um, in the sixth grade middle school where I teach where we talk about um, dignity and shame and Lashon Hara. Um, we have a lot of conversations about nicknames um, based on this source. What does that actually mean? Like, what kind of names? And right, um, but it could be that actually the person doesn't have that redding of a face or Lisa that halba not right. They don't go into shock. It's not like they hear that word and their face like, you know, that they're, they're sort of used to it. Um, there's, no, we're gonna think about two different kinds of used to it. Um, even so, right? You maybe have to be aware that like what you're saying has an internal effect. And if you think that that name is derogatory, then you should just not say it. It's not like, well, it didn't really bother them or they think it's funny or they're used to it by now. Um, like everybody does it. Um, so this is a very um, extreme source in that way. Um, something very interesting that one of my students um, said was actually that thinking about derogatory names also, especially if you think about culturally derogatory names they've been learning right in social studies, that like it could be that people have like masks that they put on that they're just socially acculturated to um, depending on what society they live in. Um, and it could be referring to this also, right? That like we just use terms sometimes um, and, and could be that those terms are like not dignified terms and they're actually derogatory terms. Um, and to be much more careful about that, even if not every time we use that term, um, a person is going to start crying in front of us um, or like, show that, um, show that response um, and something that we have to be um, careful for. Um, but again, it's, uh, right, as Charlotte pointed out, these are very extreme statements about the significance or, or the severity of this act. Um, Rabbeinu Yuna, who falls out on the um, severe side, um, says that an act, this is in his book, Shari Tishva, which is a, right, a Musar-oriented book about right, ethical and ethical treatise. Um, and he says um, something that is like avak, let's see, avak means like it's sort of tangentially, it's of like has the dust of literally. Like it's, uh, you know, in the larger rubric of murder, like somewhere within that much larger rubric um, is habanat pani, based on the Gemara here. He says, why? Right? Because white in the face, the red color leaves, and it resembles murder, right? As the Gemara, he quotes the Gemara we just learned. And he says, secondly, and this goes much more to the emotional piece, right? We're not talking about only, okay, the blood moves, and that's why, right? It's not, it's not, it's not really about that. Could be that it's more bitter or distressing for a person than a physical damage, than actual death. Um, that maybe a person, this is again, a very extreme example of Tamar, um, that maybe a person would rather suffer physical harm to themselves than be, than be like mortified in a, in a social way um, or be seriously embarrassed. Um, and this is really the only 
only prohibition that is compared to murder. It's not like something that the rabbis throw around. A lot of things are compared to Avodah Zarah, the idol worship, right? This anger is idol worship. This is idol worship. That's idol worship. This, other things are not compared to the damage being done. Um, and isn't yeah, it now not. saying that the person who does the embarrassing is the one who's so no. embarrassed they want to die? No, the, the person who was embarrassed. The person who was embarrassed. But it says it is preferable for an individual to throw himself in. Oh, oh, it's not saying he's embarrassed. It's like better he had done than that than that he ah, had. So that's getting. Thank you for pointing that. Out. Okay, so um, yes. So there's two levels. One is would a person themselves rather. So this is going, and I put, um, you see the link on the bottom, and I think, Shell, you'll be interested in this, um, the extent to actually which throughout the rabbinic literature this comparison is played out and what the implications of it are. Um, there's a two-part article, which is part of a book um, that, that I linked here. If people want to see sort of the tradition on this idea and the implications. Um, but know that there's sort of, there's three things that one um, ideally maybe would rather suffer like martyrdom than commit idolatry, right? Um, right? Sexual sins um, of certain nature um, and murder. So if this is connected to murder, right? Should somebody, no, nobody says that. Nobody actually says straight out, and again, you can read this article, right? Nobody, it, like when it, when a push comes to shove to those actual questions, um, the comparison becomes a little bit more nebulous, um, but the comparison serves a very important purpose. Um, so this situation is Tamar and Yehuda, um, right, that the Tamar was going to be, that, that, that instead of outing her um, father-in-law, um, that he did the wrong thing and sinned with her um, and didn't like marry her to his son, um, that she was ready to be taken out um, to be um, killed for her actions. Um, of course, she sent it to him privately, right? She didn't say publicly. She sent it to him privately. He did the right thing, um, but that was banking on it. Right? She could have done it publicly. Um, she had the evidence and she could have done it publicly, but she didn't do it publicly. Um, in the end, that story worked out. Um, so the story of, of um, the story is sort of used as an example um, in some of these. Um, but people can read this article just to see there's some interesting questions about um, Right, a general approach to martyrdom, is this something that we take um, literally, right? We, it's not listed in one of the things, like no one would say you actually, right, should, should die instead of embarrassing somebody, but it gives you a sense of um, how important um, it is, right, and how significant it is. And also I think the level of the damage, um, right, that one can actually cause like lifelong damage um, or can suffer, right, if one has been, um, a victim of this can actually suffer a pain that will stay with them for a very, very long time and can cut very deep. Yeah, Miriam. Uh, it was just interesting. I thought you were going to go the other direction to the other Tamar um, uh, and oh, yeah. kind of make that connection to rape, that um, ah. it's very similar to, you know, murder in the shame yes. and the erasure of personhood. Yes. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Right, so there's something very, um, there's something very fundamental um, here about embarrassing somebody. Now we can think of right, not all um, right, calling somebody, and it right, it, it's all a matter of some, it, it's a matter of um, degree, 
Um, also a question that came up in chat from Desmond. Yeah. Um, quote, uh, we talk about this in parenting too. If yes. I need to correct a child, I should take them aside where slash when no one hears. Yes. So we're going to get into the idea of tohacha of reproof and whether, right, the public or private, um, right, that they're sometimes important to have things right, be corrected. Um, and, right, what's the, um, I think there's a lot of questions in education. And so hopefully we'll, we'll get those discussed out during those sources as well, right? The, the idea of, um, of not doing certain things in public when possible. Um, and what's the significance of that? Um, the Mishnah Torah here um, lists different categories, again, of people that don't have a share in the world to come. Um, and they say people that give uh, a, a nickname, like a, a nickname that maybe that person doesn't want. Um, and they call them by that nickname um, and they embarrass them in public. And um, and they glorify themselves by, by they put, them, put other people down to lift themselves up. Um, and they disgrace scholars and they disgrace their teachers, right? So there's a whole subset here um, where shame um, is seen as something that is, is really, um, is different than other, um, other transgressions or other actions that we might do. Um, I think we can think of it from, from both ends, right? When, I, when we read this and we also think of like putting ourselves in the situation um, of like, the person who was embarrassed, um, right? Like what, what, what are you feeling in that moment? Like what would you want, um, right, to, to have happen? Um, and is it like, say covering but the fact that that type of emotional damage and pain is acknowledged in such a very severe and extreme way by the Talmud and then by the rabbinic sources um, I think just goes to how deep this this really is um, right acknowledging that actually right this idea of like sticks and stones will make my bones but words will never hurt me is not actually the way that the Talmud thinks and we often think of like that as oh, the old way of looking at things is like, right, is really about like physical and like you got through it and like you're still there and, um, right, but, but, you know, words like people can brush them aside. Um, and I think these sources are so, like we're picking up on the one hand, so severe and extreme, um, but if we pull back from um, that, that extreme, like extremists of that language for a moment, just thinking about how, how much it acknowledges um, the depth and severity of somebody who has been shamed, especially shamed in a public way or shamed in a repeated way and how that could really impact their lives um, going forward. Um, to that, I'll bring um, right, Dr. Bernie Brown, who's written lots about shame and the importance of vulnerability and acknowledging shame as part of one's, um, one's past. Um, she says, if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially. It needs secrecy, it needs silence and it needs judgment. If you put the same amount of shame in a petri dish and douse it with empathy, it cannot survive. So the next sources are thinking about knowing that we're not perfect and knowing that actually we try our best sometimes, but on a societal level, there are sometimes situations where people end up feeling really, really embarrassed. Um, right? The way that things are, um, and we're going to look at some social situations, a lot of them are religious um, situations, 
um, but social institutions and social institutions where the way that things are set up um, are just causing the most vulnerable. We talked about questions in the beginning about the most vulnerable um, in society. So that the most vulnerable, um, the least educated, um, right, the ill, um, maybe the poor, um, are just set up constantly for just being felt shamed. Even if no one is actively in the moment pointing at them and saying anything or calling them names, the way that um, systems are set up cause them to feel that on a regular basis. And so these sources acknowledge that and then say, well, what can we do about that? Um, and so we're gonna look at three examples from um, Tanaitic sources from the times of the Mishnah that address this. Um, the first is from Moed Katan. So this is from the end of Moed Katan. Moed Katan talks, first talks about the laws of the intermediate days of Chol Moed, but also ends up being the main um, tractate that talks about the laws and practices of mourning and burial. This is a fascinating string of breitot. Breitot are um, sayings from the rabbis from the times of the Mishnah that were not included in the Mishnah itself. So the Gemara brings them here. Um, of, this is the way there's a certain tone we'll see in many of these um, and in the next Mishnah as well. Right? Things were initially this way. That was making some people feel really embarrassed and feel really bad and um, hurting their dignity. And so this change, this takana was, was instituted. Um, we also often think of takana as something very harsh, like, oh, there's a takana, but no, we can't do this. So we think of takana as very restrictive a lot of the times. And these are examples of takana that um, fix a societal problem. Um, so the sages taught at first, but they would bring the first meal after the funeral to the mourners. Um, the wealthy would bring it in these really beautiful gold and silver baskets. And the poor would bring it in these like really cheap willow, like put together baskets. And the poor were really embarrassed. Mitzvahishim. Right? They're going to do this mitzvah. They're showing up to comfort the mourner. They don't even have that much to give to begin with. And here they're like trying to like give of what they have because they care of somebody and they show up and someone else has this like beautiful platter. Right? How do they feel about putting their platter next to this gorgeous platter? Like, why did I even do this? And it just makes me feel really bad. Um, and so the rabbis instituted that actually no one's allowed to bring gold and silver anymore to the house of the mourner. Everybody just brings their food in these very cheap, simple willow branches um, because of the kavod of the poor people, right, for their dignity. Similarly with glasses, right, they would serve wine, um, they drink wine all the time, right, they would serve and also maybe would fortify the people after this really emotionally, right, brought time, um, and they're very sad and grief. They would have this nice, clear, right, expensive glass, and the poor would have, like, colored glass, and they were embarrassed. Um, Right, so now that's about the living, right? The poor people who are doing this mitzvah. We're now going to see that the line between um, embarrassing the living, embarrassing the dead, um, people thinking about their own vulnerability and what's going to happen when they die um, are going to play out in some of these situations. So at first, they used to uncover. So this might be surprising because we're so used to Jewish funerals, traditional funerals being done where it's closed casket. And this is where we see that actually that wasn't always the way. Um, and there was a specific time when that became standardized. Um, that if people were wealthy, they died a good death, they looked healthy, right? They had a good healthy face. They would, uh, they would 
everybody could come and see their face when they would do the procession. Um, but the poor people, right, they, they died of, of um, hunger, maybe illness, and they, their faces were, were dark um, and they were embarrassed because it's just even the very fact that they were buried, like in death in this last moment when people come to pay their respects, it's like a moment of shame, right? That I, they can't even see my face because I was poor, right? And I don't even get to be buried with the same dignity and respect, right? You would think everybody's equal, right? Right, three things, right? Think happened to everybody. Hey, even in death, maybe you're not equal. So the sages say everyone's face should be covered, right? Similar to how they would carry them out, right? In these fancy versus not fancy, um, then it gets to people who had different um, different illnesses um, or impurities that um, they would only do certain things for those people. And the people who were living, um, who had either these illnesses, um, who were in these situations, were embarrassed because they said, "Oh my goodness, when I this is I, like this is what's going to happen to me." And like now, people don't necessarily know that I have this, but like when I die, like people are going to be that's what people are going to be thinking about me. Um, and they felt really, really bad. Um, so they came up with all of these standardizations um, around mourning um, and mourning practices and burial practices to prevent embarrassment. Um, the last one, um, and some of this is like, tells us how we got where we are today with the practices that we have, right? Simple, right? That we have very simple burials um, and a simple shroud. Um, because first it was so expensive that the relatives would just like run away from the responsibility. They just couldn't afford it, right? Because the level of what was expected for a funeral to say, this is how you respect someone and to pay all this money was so hard for the poor people. Um, and so then Rabban Gamliel, who was right a, a leader, um, the exilarch, but he led by example. And he said, okay, when I die, you're gonna put me in the simplest shroud. and showed by example, right? Um, and was kind of mochel um, on his kavod, right? He wasn't worried about being shamed because he's a leader um, and people listened to him. And um, and then they started to use these shrouds. Um, and these laws are codified. If you look at the Mishnah Torah and the Shushan Aruf, um, many of these laws are codified. Um, the next example is from the Mishnah in Bikurim. So if people remember, um, when you bring your basket of Bikurim, Shavuot is coming up. When you bring your basket, there's a whole long section. It's in our Haggadah, right? Aramea, Ben Avi, an Aramean or wandering Aramean. Um, um, however one wants to translate it, and Rabbi Silver has some beautiful Torah on that, so I would want to, um, there's a lot of beautiful things on that. But there was a whole long declaration that someone would have to say word for word the way it was in the Torah. And many people were not educated to be able to do that. And so originally, um, everybody who knew, right? if you knew how to read, how to recite, you would do it. But if you didn't, you would get there. You're in the temple. You're at this moment of joy. And then the Kohen would come and like, they would have to repeat after somebody word by word. It was kind of embarrassing, right? To have to repeat word by word when you're trying to come and do this beautiful, joyous mitzvah. Um, and so they just refrained. Like people who didn't know, just said, I'm not going to show up anymore to do this mitzvah because it's it's embarrassing. Like Bernard says, right? It was from shame. They were, they were felt shame, right? And that's the last thing you want somebody to feel in that moment. So the rabbi said, okay, we make a takana. Everybody repeats word for word, no matter what. I don't care if you're an expert, right? It doesn't matter. Everybody has the right, same basic 
um, standards for everybody. We see this um, in some situations today, um, most commonly at, um, at weddings, um, if people have seen that often, um, and in sometimes other moments as well, where it's very, very public. Um, some people might know and some people might not know. Um, so often the officiant will, for everybody, have them repeat after them word for word. And so that way, no matter what, Right. And it's moments of joy, um, people should not feel embarrassed, right? Oh, I should have learned about, I should have like, you know, learned this by now. Um, um, the Rosh here has an interesting, um, right, thinking about like practices that we do today. Um, there's lots of questions here about like correcting people, not correcting people. How do we set up, like what are the bars to participation that we have in ritual spaces so that people don't feel embarrassed? Um, right, so that's a big question that this source brings up. Right, how do we make um, ritual participation when people come to do a mitzvah, um, make it feel that um, we're accommodating in a way that um, people don't come and say like, oh, I don't know how to do this, so I'm not going to come next time because I was the only one that didn't know how to do it and I felt really bad. Um, right? And that's not the kind of environment that we should be creating. Um, so again, it's not on anyone individual, but sort of on the on the um, community. Um, so he talks about um, having this custom where the prayer leader will say it along with everybody. Um, some synagogues have this with Kaddish for a variety of reasons, but sometimes you have, this is with reading the Torah. Um, but he talks about a situation here where maybe it's like, it's like, you know, reading the Torah, like you're not gonna necessarily jump for that if you don't know what you're doing. It's sort of a self-selecting thing. Um, so some things are self-selecting, which is different than Bikurim, which everybody should be doing, right? So thinking about what are things that are self-selecting? How do we still, um, you know, even in those things that are self-selecting, person might not have um, the right um, self, um, self-awareness um, of their actual knowledge. Um, someone might feel like, I know what I'm doing, um, but actually they're not up to the standards um, that would be expected. And so instead of creating a, ten, a, ten, like a tense situation where you get into having to tell someone like uh, your standards are not, right, are not our standards, um, that maybe we always have um, the prayer leader, right, read it along or do it with them. Right? So it's one example that the rush brings here of like, how do we take this idea of the cream and think about in our ritual spaces? Um, the third, um, the third source that we're going to look on this um, goes back to some of the questions that we saw in Mon Katan about the poor, um, or people who feel that there's a financial barrier to um, participation. Um, so this is a, this is a very famous Mishnah, um, but we're going to look at it in a little bit of a different way. Um, Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamliel said, there were no days as joyous for the Jewish people as the 15th of Av, and is Yom Kippur because the daughters of Jerusalem would go out in white clothes and each woman borrowed them from each other. Now, why would they borrow them, right? Why would they borrow white clothes? Oh, they did this, so as not to embarrass one that didn't have them. Um, especially, I think, white clothing, having something white, um, is uh, pretty, right? you would have to just keep it for special occasions where people didn't have that many things to wear. Um, and it's also something very specific just for that situation. Um, so it created, um, when they created this system, 
um, where everybody everybody had to borrow them. Right? Even if you could afford to get something new, even if you had six white dresses of your own, um, everybody was able to borrow them, right? No exceptions. Um, this sort of only works if everyone does it, right? Um, if a few people one year start, especially because this is not this is not a takana. Um, what I think is interesting about this source is it doesn't really tell you how this practice started. Like who came up with this idea that everybody borrows it? Right? This, this seems to be like a grassroots kind of thing um, in this moment. Um, and I think sometimes that um, also puts, you know, some of it's like on high, like why is it like this, right? Why are the rules like this? Or why can't it be more welcoming or further inclusive? And this sort of also reminds us like sometimes, um, Right. How do we think about things that we can do, um, right, amongst um, like community member to community member, um, and to sort of put everybody on feel like they're on equal footing. But you have to buy into it, right? For all of these things, um, the people who have, either who are educated um, or right, who have, like they have to sort of buy into this um, importance of. Um, the vulnerability of others in these situations. Like, I'm thinking, what's so bad? Like, I'm just going to wear my own thing. Like, I want to, that's what makes me, like, I want to celebrate and like, do what I want to do. And like, okay, I'll be fine. Um, and the, this, this, this show reminds us that there are times that actually um, part of the communal experience is like just being all in the same, right? Putting ourselves in the same situation together. Yes, Lisa. You want my guess? My guess is yeah. one of the rabbi's wives <laughs> came up with this idea to make it level for the women. Could be. It could be, right? And it could be like a crowdsourced, you know, like maybe a few of the young women one year just decided, like, let's just do this. Um, right? It could be. Um, right? Was it right? Some of the wives behind the scenes? Um, was it the young women themselves who just said, well, why are we like making like let's just do this this year? And then it caught on. Um, right. Like these simple things sometimes right can make a big difference. Um, the source um, source number five is an example of a community takana. Um, some of these takana exist today in different communities for um, just like in this this communal celebration of you know, of tisha, of uh, sorry of tuba av, um, when people would go out and celebrate um, that how do finances play in in communal uh, which is a very big question. Um, in uh, in the Jewish community, so not only in the Jewish community, but we celebrate a lot of uh, religious milestones in a communal way. Um, so he, this is Raphael Bardugo, um, who lives in the 19th century. If people are interested in his bio, um, I put it here. Um, so Chacham Raphael Bardugo writes, um, that there's a takana that we made to reduce expenses for a Brit Mila or a Zevid Habat, um, right, when a, a celebration of a baby girl. Um, so there was a custom, it was like this understood custom that at the feast of a Brit Mila and at the Zevid Habat, um, that they would give out all different kinds of sweets. And we have canceled or nulled this practice completely because it was a great sorrow it ended up making right a moment that should be joyous it actually brought a lot of like pain to the ballet batim um and like husbands and wives right who were like making these celebrations would argue with each other about this probably because of the financial strain and what the right thing to do and how much and this and that when it should just be like a nice celebration so we said okay 
right? Especially if they're poor and they don't have, and they feel like they have to push themselves now and then be embarrassed that when they're trying to celebrate that they can't do what other people have done. Um, a second example, which I didn't translate, was on um, Shabbatot that are celebrated for the occasion of a simcha also, right? Somebody would send a lot of food and sometimes people would send not so much food. So they said, okay, whenever there is a Shabbat simcha, nobody may send more than X amount. That's it. We're going to cap it. And this is all you can send. Um, it's similar to in Moed Katan, right? They only did it in the willow basket. Um, this idea has not really caught on um, in most of the uh, the Jewish communities, you know, that in some communities that make many weddings, there are what's called takana weddings. They just understand this is going to be, but it's not because I can't afford it and you can, um, that we just do it in the simplest way. Okay, so it's something to think about um, on a communal level, but the story of the white dresses also reminds us, right, that there are things that we as individuals sometimes like how we show up to things and think about how, right, how to include others um, and how we be more inclusive. Um, our last topic, um, which again is a huge um, a huge topic, but we're just gonna scratch the surface and I think there's more and more being written on this, um, is the question of um, can we ever use shaming in a productive way? We're gonna talk a little bit about the personal, um, but really think about on a communal level and especially on the level of social media. Um, so there is um, there is a mitzvah both to give tochacha, um, if somebody's doing the wrong thing, that it's our responsibility. Part of not standing on the blood of our neighbor is like, should I tell people, right? You have to do it. There's a whole series of laws on that, right? To do it at the right time, that they'll be receptive, somebody have a relationship, right? There's a lot of rules about that um, in and of itself. Um, but how do these areas overlap with each other, right? The idea that we have a responsibility to other people um, if they're doing the wrong thing, especially if it's affecting other people, but also we're not supposed to embarrass somebody in public. And it's not an easy, right? It, it's they sometimes rub up against each other. Um, so it says here, right? This is quoted by the Chinuch and the Aruch HaShofan below. Um, it's written, you shall rebuke your neighbor. You should not bear sin for him. Meaning you shouldn't, we usually understand that as, you shouldn't let them keep sinning, right? Because like you see it, say something, right? See something, say something. But actually how it's understood is you're not required or you shouldn't rebuke somebody in a way that you're then gonna be culpable for embarrassing them. To put yourself in the situation of the shamer or the embarrasser because you're trying to do the right thing. Right? So you have to really think about that. Um, on the one hand, you're trying to do the right thing. On the other hand, like, are you then incurring upon yourself um, like this, this um, really severe um, punishment? Um, he says the reason in general for not embarrassing is because it's very painful. There's nothing greater than it. Um, therefore, God prevented us from causing so much pain to God's creatures um, because, as Desmond noted, most of the time, if you do be good, find a private moment. It might not be in the moment. Right now, we're going to think about severe things, whatever. We can think of lots of situations. And we're going to think of a few of those situations where maybe that moment has passed or is not going to be effective, the private one. Um, and we're going to look at some of those exceptions, but the general exception is, can it be done in private? Um, and also not like to an idea where it's shame. I know I mentioned Brunier Brown, she has this whole thing of guilt versus shame, right? Like, um, and Brunier, which you mentioned the first time, the first class has this whole idea of, um, 
versus chotim, meaning the sinners versus the sins. Like, are we fixated on like, you're a bad person? How could you do this? Or are we fixated on, you know, this thing that you did um, was not, it was the wrong thing. Um, and, you know, can you make up for that action or is there a way, right? So those are two different ways of approaching tochacha, both in private and also in the way that we frame it. And do we, we focus on shaming the person or do we focus on getting them to either, um, right, to do the right thing or to make up for it? Yes, Charlotte. Sorry, I had a question, but I think you clarified it right now oh, with, okay. with your recap. If it comes up again, let me know. I will, I will share though, if that's okay, that okay. Rabbi Sachs, um, Zichron Alevracha, wrote a very beautiful um, commentary on his, in his last book, um, Spirituality, The Greatness of Spirituality. Mm -hmm. I believe it was on Parashat Shemini, and he speaks about mm -hmm. the difference between guilt and shame. Yeah. He emphasizes, obviously, how we're more of a guilt culture and not a shame culture, but his mm -hmm. piece was very beautiful. Oh, I will have to look at that. Thank you. Sure. Um, but yeah, no question. Thank you. Yeah, though. thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so Ruch also clarifies it. Um, Ruch is more in the late 19th century. Don't speak harshly to the point where even if you're being, giving someone tochacha, you're rebuking them for something they did. Right? You don't pile it on. Right? Like there's a sense of, and I think Desmond, your point now, right? Being an educator and, and not educating children, being a parent, um, this comes up with adults all the time also. Um, I think there's a lot to really think about in the classroom um, of how how care, like I think personally as a teacher, right? How careful am I, am I about this? Because um, on the one hand, you're trying to educate churches doing the right thing. So like, oh, that's doing the wrong thing right now. And right, and like how, how are we creating um, a culture where um, right, people are responsible for their actions right? and learning the right thing to do things, but not creating sort of a shame spiral. Um, or, or where somebody's humiliated in front of everybody. And it's very, I think we all know, feel, remember those moments when a parent, um, like at a big family gathering or a teacher, right, or principal, right? Like those things stay with you for a very, very long time. Um, and the Arafat Shabbat is saying that it also works for adults, but it's not only for kids, right? We're all very vulnerable when it comes to um, our sense of dignity. Um, and he brings the same proof, right? So you should be careful not to embarrass a person in public, either an adult or a minor. Meaning there's a lot here about education. We didn't touch on this issues too much, but that like also the way that one educates children, it's not like, you know, there's a way to be talk to talk to children and respect them as well and have their dignity. Um, and he reminds us, right, that, you know, even if you think you're doing the right thing in the moment, you know, because you're on the side of even power or right, um, that actually, um, right, you really need to keep the other person's dignity in mind. And it's, it's a very tough balance. I mean, I think many of us have probably been on both sides, um, you know, myself have, right, on both sides of this. Um, and it's definitely not an easy um, rule to play. Um, we're going to look at very quickly, um, and a lot more here, you have the sources um, and some links here, um, but just some examples where um, there might be a sense of productive public shame in very extreme circumstances, which is still done Right, we're gonna think about that. So the first one is this idea of um, a person who's not, who's basically not supporting their, um, their children. Um, and um, if the person doesn't want to, maybe if they refuse to and they've been asked privately and they've been summoned, right, there's steps that have been taken, um, we denounce them and shame them and antagonize them until they do, privately. 
right? So we do use harsh words with the person, like how could they do this, right? It's a filter. Then if they still don't want to after we do this privately, then you do it in public and you say this and this person, Akhzari, they're cruel, right? They are a cruel person and they don't want to support their children, right? It's worse than even an animal. I'm not going to but you really use very harsh language, okay? Um, now, if we can do it in another way, then we do it in another way, right? This is used as a last effort, but it is mentioned as something that maybe um, can be done. Um, can you explain the part about economic estimation? I don't follow that. Right after the non-kosher bird part. Hmm. Um, if the person can afford it. Meaning if we know the person doesn't have the money, like this is not gonna get us anywhere, right? So shaming for the sake of making them feel bad that they're not supporting their kids, um, you know, even though maybe like in Les Miserables, this would be um, right, perfectly acceptable in, in that critique of society. Um, that like, if there's no, if it's not productive and it's not gonna get the person to do the thing we want them to do, um, then society has to take care of it, right? There is the responsibility is first on the parent. If the parent won't do it, then it's society. Society tries to get the parent to that point um yeah thinking about sources between man and man and man and god was a very big very big question that i wanted to get to the last source so i know that we'll have okay, time thank you to, to get into that that's fine okay um the last few sources are about and this is very relevant um if people follow this is um something that happens all the time on instagram and actually there's a very successful campaign um a few years ago um, during the pandemic when, pe when people were on social media more than they were interacting with each other um, to call out get abusers, um, like long-term meaning years and years and years, um, get abused and um, have public media shaming campaigns um, in, along with protests and get them to give the get. Some of them were actually effective. And so there's a lot of discussion of um, the use of this kind of thing. There is a precedent that Ravadia discusses here um, um, this is one example um, of using harchakot, the Rabbeinu Tam, which are social, um, basically social isolations or social pressure um, to get someone to give a get. Um, that they tried, and see, he puts all here, like this many years we tried, and we tried to do all of these things, and none of those were successful. And so when we saw that even with all of this effort, um, we instituted the harchakot of Rabbeinu Tam, which he quoted in Sefer Yashar, right, that um, they not be allowed, nobody should really speak to the person, nobody should host them in their homes, um, or they shouldn't get an aliyah, meaning that they're not a part of the community. They don't get to benefit from the community um, because they're not doing, they're basically a public uh, like pariah, becoming a pariah in the community until they give the get. Um, that's discussed in the Shekhan um, and done um, in Israel through the arm of the law in some ways these days, um, and in some communities is done today um, as well, unlimited, right? And um, so it, it's sort of a precedent um, that we have. A few questions in chat. Um, thank you for the director. Um, this is from the um, spokesperson for the chief rabbi in 2016 um, of a public shaming of a get abuser, right? This decision was made with much pain, but there was no other choice. Everything that was attempted prior to this was ineffective. The rabbinical court does not publish advertisements and does not know the word shaming. 
right? We're not, this is not shaming. They're like, what we're doing here is not what you think of as shaming, a shame spiral, public media shaming, canceling somebody. That's not what we're doing. He's trying to reframe right, what's actually being done as this is how we have a long-standing tradition of ways that a community can act to police itself internally. And that's what we're doing here. Um, right? um, Um, she chose, the wife chose to use social media, um, and that was her decision and the tools that she decided to use, right, in this particular situation. Um, so we see the, the now that things, right, doing something inside a community and doing something on social media can feel very, um, very different. Um, the last source that people can look at, and if people want some more sources on this, this was um, a moot court that was done last year, um, two years ago, on the idea of shaming on social media. Um, which has a lot of the traditional sources, um, but then some modern sources which are starting to be written about this. Um, that, right, is there ever a time and a place for using, um, for publicizing and using social media? Um, and um, Rep. Sherlow brings four um, best practices, um, best practices to use here. Um, but it really makes us think about, um, on the one hand, we saw that um, in our personal dealings, right, that we need to be really um, vigilant and careful. Um, and also if we have been the one that had been shamed, um, that actually Halakha, right, he takes that very seriously. Um, and it's, it's seen as a great hurt that has been done. Um, and that maybe it's gonna be very hard for that person to do teshuvah for you, um, right? The idea that the person can't easily ride, right? It's very hard to come back from there. Um, and communal levels, we've seen right the vulnerability of people, especially those on the margins or those um, in different right, parts of society, um, and how we can sort of create spaces that feel more inclusive um, and um, are empathetic to that vulnerability. And last, we looked at the question of right, is there ever a productive sense of shaming either um, on an individual, right, if you're in a position um, where right you're trying to get an individual to do the right thing um, or on a communal level, right? When we have a systemic system like get abuse, um, can we ever use this tool? Um, knowing that, right, um, there is um, that shaming is seen so highly. And so I know we, we got into some very um, deep discussions, but also in some ways we only scratched the surface. Um, I encourage you, you know, if you have um, questions or wanna reach out further, um, you can feel free to reach out. Um, next week, we are going to discuss the topic of anger. Um, and then our last week, we're going to talk about, um, about states of like peace of mind um, and not having peace of mind. Um, so thank you all for joining. Thank you all for your really best questions. Um, I know we didn't get into everything in detail, um, but I appreciate you all being here. And thank you for letting us together. Thank you so much. Thank you very all much. Right. Thank, thank you, Ronnie Sutton, and thank you, everyone. Thank you for your good questions. Have a good night. Great good night. Take care. And just want to let Eddie everyone know this is the deadline for our, if you are want to learn more with us this summer. Our um, our summer colo app deadline application is tomorrow, May first. There are also some spots left over in our girls' summer program. If you know someone who's a young who you know a potential young Talmud. Um, tell me that. Um, please do check out check out applications at girls.drusha.org. We have and we have plenty more classes and plenty more learning going on for the rest of this uh, sphere. And with that, have a good night, everyone. Thank you. Have a good night.